This is an ASF Audits podcast. Welcome to the SMSF Experts, the podcast that turns complex SMSF issues and legislation into everyday language. I'm your host, Shelley Banton, Head of Education at ASF Audits. And in Episode 5 of the SMSF Experts, we're discussing contribution conundrums. Because if you don't understand the contribution rules and get it wrong, putting too much super in can mean paying additional tax. There are a lot of strategies around how to maximise contributions, and to discuss them, I have one of the SMSF industry's foremost experts with me, Tim Miller, to help me make sense of it all. Tim is the SMSF Technical and Education Manager at Smarter SMSF, and he's worked in numerous technical and educational roles over his 20 years of experience. He has aided in the accreditation of over a thousand financial planners and accountants while delivering an unknown number of CPD training hours during his time in the industry. Tim is a regular presenter at all of the major SMSF conferences and events and a well-known contributor to SMSF publications. Welcome to the SMSF Experts, Tim, and thank you for joining me today. No worries, Shelley. Always a pleasure to join you. Yeah, we always have good chats. I guess with all of your experience over the years, the thing that continues to drive you is you just love helping your clients. And there's a lot of trustees who find it very easy to start swimming outside the flags and get into trouble because really, as we say, you don't know what you don't know. So is there anything else that I guess keeps you continuing down that SMSF education path that you seem to love so much? Oh, look, I think probably the one thing that keeps me going is that we've always made sure we've had governments that are consistent in their policy on superannuation. So, you know, they like to uh, to change their up a fair amount, which in the end keeps what I do fresh because I'm always having to keep on top of the changes. And uh, like you say, people don't know what they don't know. So if you can be one of those people that can know as much as possible, then you can help a lot more people. Yeah, no, that's 100%. And you're right, the more things stay the same, the more they change. So it's never a dull moment in SMSF, Phil. Well, look, let's get started on our discussion and journey with contributions today and start with the basics. Members can only have one accumulation account where they can make contributions, which sounds a bit weird to some people because you can have multiple pension accounts. But given that, what is a contribution and what are the types of contributions that can be made into a member's super fund account? You get a little bit technical when you answer this question because a contribution is considered by the tax office anything that increases the balance of a member's account, which isn't linked to the returns on an investment as such. So in many respects, it's any sort of deposit into the the superannuation fund that isn't linked to an existing type of investment. So for most people, we understand and appreciate that that is an amount that an employer would contribute or an amount that an individual or their spouse would contribute. And in some instances, in the technical sense, it also does include things like rollovers, but then the Tax Act acts to exclude some of these events from being sort of contributions in the broader sense that we know them. So what most of us appreciate and understand that contributions are, are amounts put in to a superannuation fund for and on behalf of a member and the source of that being an amount from an employer or from effectively the member themselves or their spouse and in some instances parents to children. Yeah. And are there any age restrictions on who can make contributions? Does that hinder what people can get into an account? I'm going to actually answer this by saying that there's two distinct age groups because there's the under 18 age group where there's no actual restriction to make contributions, but the restriction is you've got to have a tax file number. And so a lot of children won't have a tax file number 
Uh, and so it's incumbent on their parents or whatever to establish a TFN for them before they can make a contribution. But then at the real end of life, from the end of, of when people are looking from a, a contribution point of view, 75 is the cutoff age for the majority of people to make a contribution. However, we actually have sort of two distinct exemptions to that. One being if you sell your primary place of residence and uh, you've owned it for longer than 10 years, then you can make a downsizer contribution once in your lifetime, but that can be at any time after age 55. And then the other one is mandated contribution. So if you've got an employer and they're contributing, which will be 11% from the 1st of July, 2023, the super guarantee, then mandated employer contributions also don't have an age limit attached to them. Yeah. And is there any strategy, I guess, around what is the best age, if there is any, to think about contributing that downsizer? Because if you've got it available to you once only from age 55 onwards, you don't want to be getting to the point where you go, oh, I think I'll downsize and then you die. (laughs) So... Well, I guess the, uh, I don't want to start the sentence with, I guess the benefit of dying is that uh, is that, that money could potentially then move across to your spouse. But what I will say is that from a, a contribution strategy point of view, I would always review something like a downsizer contribution as the strategy of last resort. So you have uh, other capacity to make a non-concessional, so a personal uh, untaxed contribution to the super fund, and you can only make them up to to 75 or 28 days following the end of the month in which you turn 75. But uh, but they are means tested. So those contributions are subject to how much money you had at the previous year. So really, if you're making personal contributions, you want to be making or maximizing them up until 75 and then utilizing any other opportunities such as the downsizer later. But of course, it's also timing based on when you sell your house too, because uh, mm-hmm. if you only uh, sell your house once, um, and move into a smaller place, then that's the time that you look to make the downsizer because you are restricted and must make that uh, contribution within 90 days of settlement. Yeah, and also provide the right documentation to your auditor Absolutely. to make sure that uh, they're happy with that contribution as well. Yep. So I find it always interesting that the CIS regulations, the super regulations that you know govern a self-managed super fund doesn't limit the amount of contributions that can be made into a member's account. But obviously we have limits on how much can be contributed. So why is that limit there and where does that come from? Yeah, so again, it's one of the intricacies of superannuation and that is that keeps me employed, which is <laughs> that uh, we, we have the CIS Act, which regulates what a fund or how a fund operates. And then we have the Tax Act, which regulates you know, what concessions we're entitled to in life and, and what tax we'll pay subject to, to the various concessions. So ultimately, we have the CIS Act saying, right, well, up until 75, you can contribute. There's no rules about the trustee accepting those contributions. But the Tax Act saying, we're going to impose limits as to how much money you can have in super because superannuation is taxed at a concessional tax rate of 15%. Or in, in some instances, once you move to retirement phase, uh, 0% on uh, the amount up to the general transfer balance cap if you start a pension. Now, again, from the 1st of July 2023, the transfer balance cap is $1.9 million. So really having caps is a way of restricting how much money people can put into super that then sits within a tax concession environment. Because if you go back, like some of us do, Shelley, to pre-2007, there was no limit on how much money you could put into the tax concession superannuation environment. So it resulted in uh, in these funds that we often talk about or hear about, these large $100 million self-managed super funds, the elusive $100 million self-managed <laughs> super funds, which is definitely not mine. 
No, nor mine, unfortunately. And then obviously those that are creeping above that $3 million mark is going to have that proposed $3 million tax being potentially implemented in a couple of years' time. So we're obviously seeing the government carefully regulating and mandating how much money you can get into super through contributions, but also then how much you can have in there to get that concessionally taxed environment available to you above a certain amount. So it's come a full circle, I guess, if you think of it like that. Yeah, that's right. And I don't ever like frequently use dates like 2007 because what we see if we've been in the industry long enough is that we're effectively turning the industry back to where we were at that time when Mm. there were other particular limits where tax concessions disappeared. Yeah. And to be fair as well, while the government's sort of putting those limits in place for the proposed super tax at 3 million level and also the contribution caps, there is no limitation to what you can put into super and how much you can have into super. It's just that you have to pay the additional tax at the end of the day. So if you exceed your contribution caps, you're going to get an excess determination and then that will be extra tax and away, you know, you'll have to deal with that either from a, at a fund level if you want to or personally as well. So you've got several options there too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what happens with the caps if you don't use all of them up in one year? And can you use it in the following year? And is it different for concessional versus non-concessional contributions? How does that work? Yeah, so the rules around concessional, which for the majority of people from an understanding point of view is obviously your employer contributions are concessional, but also any contributions that you intend to claim a a personal tax deduction on, they'll also be considered your concessional versus your after tax, the old undeducted or non-concessional contributions. So both of them have varying opportunities available if you don't use the entire amount in a given year. Now, particularly with concessional contributions, so if you've got your employer contributing and you're also choosing to make personal contributions and so top up the level that you've got inside your fund, there is a capacity to carry forward any amount that you haven't claimed or haven't used from the previous year's cap but it's subject to you having a, uh, a total amount in superannuation, they call it a total superannuation balance, as you know, at the previous 30 June of less than $500,000. So if we appreciate that a, a fairly significant proportion of people with money in superannuation have less than $500,000 in super, it means if you haven't used the previous year's contribution limit, and, and that's currently $27,500, then any unused amount rolls forward and it actually rolls forward for up to five years. So yep. so for those with lower balances, now's a really interesting time because next year is the first year where you can look back for a full five-year period. So yep. you could actually review what you've done or more to the point haven't done over the last five years and potentially make a larger contribution. Of course, in concessional sense, you're only doing that if you've got the assessable income to be able to offset it with the, the, the tax deduction or wishing your employer to make larger salary sacrifice amounts. So that's concessional contribution. The non-concessional sort of works a little bit differently in that if you don't use your cap up in one year, you don't get to sort of carry that amount forward. But what you can do is you can bring forward future year's contribution. So if you've got the capacity to make a, a larger contribution in one year, and again, the current cap is that $110,000, if your total superannuation balance, and again, they use that to that concept of looking back to the previous 30 June to see what your balance was. If your balance is less than varying thresholds, then you can potentially carry forward or bring forward, sorry, future year's contributions and make a larger contribution in the current year. But the offset of that is if you did. So for example, this year, so before 30 June 2023 or next year, 
which is a little bit different from 1 July 2023, uh, we've had a change in the general transfer balance cap. So if you wanted to bring forward 330000 and put in that amount this year, in the, in the 22-23 year, then you had to have less than $1.48 million in your super balance at 30 during 2022. But if you want to look at that measure next year, then it'll be subject to a new general transfer balance cap and it will be subject to you having less than $1.68 million. So it's a very delicately balanced fine line Correct. as to when you decide to trigger your bring forward yep. and also whether or not you can continue to meet that moving forward and whether or not you've got capacity to do so once you've exceeded that and you're still, you know, say you're at the brink of retirement, you've got a whole lot of other issues to contend with there as well. Yeah, and I think probably one key point to, to mention about that opportunity to bring forward an amount is once you go over the one-year cap of $110,000, then you've automatically triggered it. So triggered it. even if you put in $110,001, now not suggesting that anyone's going to do that, but hey, there's always one. Well, then you've triggered it for the next year, and so you're going to lock in over that next year period. So if you do that, and then your balance at 30 during this year increases because of asset valuations, well, that might actually restrict your capacity to contribute anything in the in the next year. Um, now, of course, we've got a big uplift in the, the general transfer balance cap this year, so it might be a bit different. But, you know, the, really the purpose of the bring forward is to try and put as much in in that first year as you can. As possible. I just wanted to go back to the unused carry forward for the concessional yes. contributions. So what happens if I go, all right, well, I've got $20,000 of unused concessional contributions that I haven't used in the last five years. I'm going to put them in this year. And the ATA goes, yeah, no, sorry, you've only got 15000 So how does that work? What do I need to do to be able to justify or find out what my actual unused cap is? So the thing in this scenario is really that the ATO are the keeper of all information. Now, the, the reality of the ATO being the keeper of all information is that they will keep what's reported to them. So it's really going to be subject, A, to what your fund has reported via your member statements each year and by the, the annual return, but also then what, as an individual, the individual has claimed from a, a personal tax deduction. So we know that all employer contributions are reported by the employer to the ATI. So it's just then subject to whether or not individuals have also reported the, the correct information. So then via MyGov, uh, that... Uh, that wonderful collection of, of all data of, uh, of varying sort of government agencies will report on what your current year concessional contribution cap is. And because they also report on the total superannuation balance, if your balance is less than that 500000 then that will show or should, subject to all the reporting being correct, show what your current year's cap is. So the first portal call is to go and check what's in MyGov and then go and have a discussion with your advisor if you're not at all sure or you think that it's incorrect. And the reality is if you don't do that and get it wrong, then you're going to exceed that concessional cap. And if you think that the ATO's position is wrong, well, then it's incumbent on you as the individual, as the member, to either argue with the tax office right, or to, yep. to put in an objection to their assessment or to wear it on the chin and have an excess concessional contribution, in which case you'll be requested to, to refund that excess and pay 
marginal tax. So the worst case outcome is still not terrible if you exceed your cap. Sure. Okay. So one of the regulations insists it says you have to allocate a member's contribution within 28 days after the month in which it's received. So when we're looking at towards the end of the financial year, like we are now in June, does this have any tax implications if you're making personal contributions in June just before the end of the financial year to be able to get more into super? Yeah, look, it does. And this is, uh, again, a measure that's been around for some time, and but it's one that people really need to understand for two reasons. One, because this is where the Tax Act and the, the Super Act really don't talk very well to each other. And more importantly, the administration process. So the, the capacity to be a, an SMSF trustee and report correctly via your annual returns just doesn't correlate with the the process that you're trying to to achieve. So, so yes, the the CIS regulations say all contributions must be allocated within 28 days following the end of the month in which they're received. So, if you make a contribution, or if a contribution is received in June this year, the trustee is uh, under an obligation to make sure it's allocated by the 28th of July to satisfy the the superannuation regulations. Now, the superannuation regulations are what dictate which year the contribution will be measured against your contribution cap. So in essence, if you allocate a contribution in July next year, it will count towards next year's contribution cap. From a tax deduction point of view, so we jump across to the the income tax legislation to claim a personal tax deduction, it's not about allocation, it's about receipt. And so to be entitled to claim a, a personal tax deduction, it's what year was the contribution received, not what year was it allocated. So the process can be a little bit complex because what happens is if you wish to, say, claim a larger tax deduction in the current year by making a contribution in June that you're going to allocate in July, then for contribution cap purposes, it's going to look like you've exceeded your cap. Now, what you then have to do is you have to, and, and you really need to be documenting this at the, the time of the transaction, is you need to document that the contribution is received in June and that the trustees have made a decision to allocate it within 28 days from the end of the month and then do a secondary minute come the time of allocation to say that the allocation is occurring in the new financial year. The funds deed must provide for that ability. And then the next thing you have to do is you actually have to complete a form which asks the ATO to adjust your current year concessional contributions and to reallocate an amount from this year to next year so that, that you're using that, uh, that 28-day capacity, but you're applying for the ATO to do it because you can't actually do it inside the, the fund's financial statement. So it is a hotbed of problems for many because they, they don't understand the, the process. But if you if you follow the process appropriately and, and communicate with the ATO before it gets to the assessment point of view, then, then it is an opportunity to be able to claim a larger deduction in year one and not have a breach of your contribution caps. So this month, yep. if you hadn't made any concessional contributions and you hadn't any employer contributions in, you could put in 27.5. Yep. And then you could also put in another 27.5 for this month, claim the full deduction of the 55 for this financial year. Yep. And then 27.5 of it gets allocated within 28 days, which is July next financial year. Yep within that 28-day period, and then your cap's gone, your contribution cap's gone yes. for that financial year, which potentially might be a problem if you end up getting a job where you're getting SGC money coming in. So there's a whole lot of things that you need to think about and plan for here. It's not just, oh, my goodness, I can get a 
big a tax deduction in the current year. You have to think and plan a little bit ahead about why you're doing it, how you're doing it, and making sure that you don't create more problems for yourself in the future. Yeah, and particularly because I think what a lot of people tend to overlook is that uh, an employer's super guarantee obligation is a quarterly obligation. So a lot of uh, currently a quarterly obligation. So currently, a yes. lot of the uh, the contributions for the June quarter won't be made. Some employers will make them before 30 June to get the yep. tax deduction, but a lot Correct. of employers will actually make that contribution in July. So you're almost having to look back at what contributions were made for what you thought was the previous year uh, because employer stuff doesn't always align with what your salary is for, for this year. And so you just need to make sure you're on top of, of all of those various contribution amounts. Yeah, so timing is the key. Yep. Which brings us to, I guess, my next question in terms of when you make a contribution for the current financial year, you've really only got until midnight of June 30 to make that contribution. What happens if you're doing, you know, not every bank has NPP available to it and they choose not to. That's another discussion for another time. But what happens if I put a BPAY in on the 29th of June and it's not getting through until the 1st of July? Is that a too bad, so sad? Or how do we navigate through that? The, the reality is it is uh, too bad, so sad, and that is that the tax office, they take a very hard line approach to the timing of contributions, and so the contribution must be received by the 30th of June. Now, this is where it occasionally helps to be a little old school, because if you write a check What's that? and you date that check the 30th of June and you, uh, and you bake that check on the 30th of June and it doesn't clear for a couple more days, well, that contribution is still received on the 30th of June. So... You know, it's always important to have that date stamp for the remittances, but no one uses checks anymore. And so in, in the electronic transfer world, it's it's really critical, particularly because the 30th of June is a Friday this year, very critical that people, um, people make those contributions early in that week or preferably even earlier. Yeah, so really um, get your house in order and get yourself sorted yep. sooner rather than later. Well, you really, you've got till Friday night, which is the 30th of June at midnight, to get those in. So if it went in on the Saturday... If you did it on the Friday, and as we know, a lot of banks don't reconcile until the nightly run and it doesn't get into the Saturday, you're pretty well a shot duck. Yep, correct, correct. Okay. Let's talk about in-specie contributions because these are really interesting and come with their own set of problems potentially. Yep. What is an in-specie contribution and when is it deemed to have been made? An in-specie contribution is, is, is effectively a contribution in kind. So instead of making a, a cash contribution, you are making a contribution to the value or to the market value of potentially the asset or the transaction that is taking effect. So to put it in its simplest format, most people will, will utilize an in-specie transfer to potentially transfer listed securities into their superannuation fund because we have this ability to do a transfer of shares. We can acquire shares from related parties. So if we wanted to, we could do a transfer of shares from our personal holding into our superannuation fund, and that would be an in-specie contribution. So when we do that, it has its own set of and I use guidelines as the, the term here because it, we're operating in based on the ATO's best practices with, with regards to, to in-specie transfers. And in-specie transfers take effect when the ownership of those shares changes hands. Now, there's, there's two elements to ownership. There is the legal yep. ownership, which is yep. when the registry says, hey, Tim, your super fund owns these. And then there's beneficial ownership which is when I think I own them in my super fund, but the registry hasn't quite finalised the, the transaction. So the ATO give us the benefit of the doubt uh, until we breach that uh, 
that benefit and breach that doubt. But the ATO give us the benefit of saying that the in-species transfer occurs when beneficial ownership changes hands and they consider that when the process is fully executed. So, for example, Shelley, if you want to transfer shares, you need to complete an off-market transfer form. So you will need to use a, a standard transfer form obtainable from your, your broker or from the registries. And in that form, you'll say that you're going to transfer X number of, I don't know, BHP shares from your personal holding to, to the super fund. And you're going to do two things. You're going to put the consideration and you're going to sign those forms. So that form is considered executed on the day that you sign it, right? So what the tax office want is they want you to match the consideration with the day that you sign the form, and that represents then the value of that in-specie transfer and in-specie contribution. That's where there becomes a little bit of fogginess and murky waters because sometimes we see that the market value hasn't been taken on the date that the share transfer has been signed. Yep. So one of the requirements is for an acquisition of assets from a related party to be at market value. <laughs> so if that market value isn't correctly stated on that form and you know, there's lots of reputable online service providers like Yahoo Finance that you can go and see what the share price is on that date. You can see what the intraday trading price is, the high, low, last and all the rest of it. And you can actually see whether that price was the date that's been signed and dated on that particular form. So making sure that the market value is correct is really important. Yep. As is making sure that you're getting that off-market transfer form sent into the share registry as soon as possible. Now, I don't know about you, are you thinking about four weeks is probably a reasonable time from when that off-market transfer form was signed to potentially getting it on the share registry, maybe six weeks if they're really busy at the most? Well, you know what, Shelley, I've had the benefit of ATO audit hindsight on some of these matters <laughs> historically, and uh, and so I would always uh, hedge on four weeks or less. Four weeks or less. And preferably less. And, that, and that's really ultimately to say, yeah, lodge it as soon as humanly possible after you've completed it and then appreciate that the brokers or the, the business or whatever might take a little bit of time to actually process the uh, the actual transaction itself. So if you're working in a best case scenario, obviously less than four weeks is what's ideal from a processing point of view. Yeah. And look, I guess I always like to use this as a bit of an opportunity to, to point out that that four weeks that we've just spoken about is an opportunity to highlight selecting values and things within a time range because that's how a lot of these things rose as, as problems because under old stamp duty requirements you used to have 90 days to to get uh, the off-market transfer form stamped and a lot of people will use that they, they use that as a judgment call to say well you could pick a price inside the last 90 days well that's not what it talks about it's all about the date of execution as the date of valuation yeah, and that, that's something that we're very aware of at Audit. You can't go yep. and cherry pick the date that you want to acquire the shares at. You Correct. really have to do it on the date and the timing difference between what the date of the off-market transfer form is and what date it yeah. keeps the share registry will be scrutinised very carefully. Which I think is really important because ultimately you're actually doing contribution strategic planning and so you're actually basing the value on the contribution on a specific number and so therefore you're actually often choosing the number of units you're selling based on the value of the contribution you want to make as well. And you need to make sure you've done it correctly, especially around end of financial year time, because if you're signing that form before the 30th of June, that in-specie contribution is taken up 
in that particular financial year, notwithstanding the fact that it may not hit the share registry until July next financial year. Yeah, and I think, you know, the tax office in their their contribution ruling back from 2010, you know, they actually highlight the example of someone who starts to complete the form in the last week of June and then the second party to the off-market transfer form signs it on the, the 2nd of July. And so in that instance, it's executed on the 2nd of July. So again, just shows the importance of, of the timing of that execution. And in that case, if the form had been filled out but hadn't been signed or dated and it was signed and dated later, obviously the market value is going to be incorrect yep. because you're now talking several days or whatever time frame it is later, which then blows Section 66 because it hasn't been acquired at market value from a later party. So that's right. you've then got a breach. So it becomes a bit problematic. Well, it does, particularly in light of the even more slightly annoying ruling of LCR 2021 too. Oh, where... <laughs> I was going to bring that up, but you go for it, girlfriend. <laughs> where, where if you um, if you don't use the the market value at the date, but then you decide to make an adjustment to the um, to the acquisition price to to rectify that market valuation, then they'll say that the expense linked to the acquisition was a non arm's length expense, and you're ultimately then tarnishing that investment for for non arm's length income from both a a dividend point of view, but also a capital point of view when you eventually come to sell it. So, you know, we've got to a position now where and people like myself who's been banging on about off-market transfers for the best part of 15, 16 years, you know, now we've got this whole non-arms length income side of thing that we want to make sure that we uh, don't get ourselves into trouble with. And there's that example in LCR 2021-2, which discusses the acquisition of property, which is business real property from a related party. And it discusses how you've got an acquisition which is paid partly for by cash for the fund, and then you've got it partly paid by an in-specie contribution. So you have to be very careful here about the documentation, especially what you're putting on the purchase contract, because you can't put the full price on there, you can only put what the super fund's paying for it, then you have to have a separate document to state what that in-specie contribution is. It has to be put into the financials of the fund and then you also have to record that in-specie contribution with the ATO, non-concessional contribution, whatever it is. So there can be a commercially, I guess, more beneficial way of doing that and you'd need certainly the assistance of a good SMSF lawyer so that you don't provoke that gnarly bear. You could have it on the one contract so you're just necessarily having the one document so you don't have to get your hands on two at a later stage and you could actually put what both of those components were on that purchase contract but as I said you're best off getting legal advice and assistance with that to make sure that it's been done correctly. Yeah and I think I'd also just take that you know one step further and that is and this is more from the ATO position is you know my bugbear with the outcome that the tax office have provided there and there's many but but my main yeah. uh, problem is is that the examples that they tend to use are so far from reality because they talk about somebody who transfers a property and worth 900000 but they only pay $600,000. Yeah. And we know that that's not how our industry operates. What we know is yep. that largely it's it's like the off-market transfer form and someone picking a price today and not executing for another few weeks. And therefore, there being that, that slight price variance, not, not a significant price variance. And so I wish that the examples in the rulings were a little bit more true to form. 
Yeah, and also talking about the fact to getting that market valuation if it's business real property yep. as close to the transaction as it can Correct. be yeah. so that you're giving a full holistic approach as to how that can be a complying transaction at the end of the day. That's right. So just confirming that in-specie contributions count towards your contributions caps. Is that correct, Tim? 100%, yes. 100%. So you have to take that into account when you're doing some um, tax planning and making sure that you're once again colouring within the lines. And I think just to probably add 15 seconds to that is particularly with your example yep. of business real property is that it's unlikely business real property is going to be under your caps from a valuation point of view. So it is likely to include contributions plus an acquisition. Yep. So it might even be a limited recourse borrowing or whatever. So really important to get the documentation right to work out what represents what. No, that's a very good point. Thanks for that, Tim. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the work test in relation to contributions in the final few minutes that we have left. So since the 1st of July 2022, we've seen a bit of a revolution in the way the work test applies to funds and certainly to those members over the age of 67. Now, what's the work test, Tim? And what bearing does it have on members in that age cohort who are making contributions? So the work test is effectively uh, an industry term, for want of a better term, for satisfying the definition of being gainfully employed. So the Tax Act and previously the CIS Act put the requirements on contributions. And that requirement now is that for anybody who makes a contribution between the day of their 67th birthday and 28 days following the end of the month in which they turn 75, so that eight-year period, eight-year-plus period, if you make a personal contribution for which you intend to claim a personal tax deduction, then you must be gamefully employed during that financial year to be entitled to claim the personal tax deduction. So we know that there's no test, no work test as such to be able to accept non-concessional contributions. But if you wish to, to claim a personal tax deduction, then you must satisfy that definition of gainful employment, which is that you must be employed for 40 hours in 30 consecutive days. So that's for gain or reward. So again, this is going to be reviewed primarily by the tax office. So have you declared income? Do you have income to declare? Because the tax office are going to be the party determining if you've satisfied that gainful employment requirement no longer is a trustee obligation. Which doesn't necessarily include if you receive dividends or income from an entity. So you need to be gainfully employed and yeah. receiving income properly. Correct. Yeah. So passive income is is irrelevant largely. You've got to meet that 40 hours in 30 days during the financial year that you intend to claim the, the deduction. At any time. At any time. Doesn't need to be before no. you make that contribution. And once you've met it, you're free to contribute. That's right. Up to the caps within that year. And if you don't meet it, then it's just a non-concessional contribution. So that's okay, unless, of course, you then utilise the entirety of your non-concessional cap, in which case then you, you may have an excess non-concessional contribution problem. So, Tim, are you telling me that auditors no longer have to ask for the work test? Is that what you're telling me? I'm telling you that you save, <laughs> save yourselves uh, a good minute, minute and a half each year <laughs> by not having to, uh, to review the um, suspect uh, single line work test declarations that potentially have been made in the past. 
Yeah, so the onus really now is on the member to make sure that they've got sufficient appropriate documentation on their file wherever they keep their personal information. So if the ATO ever reviews that personal deduction, they can justify it and ensure that they can tick all those boxes. Correct. Yeah, what I will say is while we're not asking for the work test where it's a personal deductible contribution, we will be asking for the notice of intents, which might be in the form of the ATO form that the puts out or the could be a member's form or a letter and we'll also be wanting the acknowledgement notice by the trustee and the ATO has already come out and said that if the member's submitting that notice of intent to the trustee, then that acknowledgement virtually has to be done as quick as it can be, which I would assume would be in, in that same day or if not the day after or something like that. And I think that's a really important point too, Shelley, because one, you have to provide that notice of intention, but two, that notice of intention to be valid has to meet a whole heap it's of criteria and one of those is yep. to be acknowledged, but particularly people that are looking at that age, 67 to 75, to commence pensions, there is an order. And so they've got to, to make their contribution, lodge their notice of intention to claim a deduction, have that acknowledged before they look to commence a pension as well. And when does a notice of intention have to be lodged with the trustee, Tim? Yeah, so in a normal set of circumstances, forgetting what I just said about the, the pension commencement, uh, in a normal set of circumstances, by the earlier of the day you lodge a tax return or the end of the next financial year. So the assumption that you lodge before the end of the next financial year, that's when your notice has to be provided by. Okay. Well, it's a lot of information to have to process. It's very much a very step through scenario that you have to make sure that you get every step of the way correctly. And one of the best ways to do that is obviously to engage with SMSF professionals like Tim, who can help you with your contributions if you have any questions. So, Thank you so much for enlightening me today and the rest of our listeners in terms of what is a contribution, how we can make it and how we can not fall foul of the Tax Act. And I'll see you at our next conference. So thank you very much, Tim. No worries, Shelley. Always a pleasure. Well, that's all for this episode of the SMSF Experts. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on contributions conundrums. I'd like to thank Tim Miller for being my special guest today. Tim has a knack of being extremely practical while also having an in-depth knowledge of SMSF strategy and compliance, and it's always a bit of a gab fest when we catch up. Please remember that what we've discussed today is for SMSF compliance and information purposes only and shouldn't be used as financial advice in any way. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and head to the ASF Audits website where you can sign up to my monthly newsletter, access fact sheets, check out our latest events and follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things SMSF.